You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our reading this morning is taken from Revelation 2, beginning in verse 1. To the angel of the, ch- of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven gold lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you, are, you have fallen. Repent and do the work you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. So as I mentioned last week, we are, this year, we're focusing on what God and his word says about our identity, who we are. If you missed last week, I'd like to urge you to go back, listen to the podcast, watch the video, get caught up. We lay out a little bit of the vision of what this year is going to look like, but we'll also, each week going on, we'll continue to sort of reemphasize that vision, a vision of looking into what God's word says about our identity. And I believe that this is a really timely thing for us to do as a church, especially at the beginning of the year, because typically a new year for people is a time to reinvent themselves. What's the age-old phrase? New year, new you. New year, new you. But not only are we entering in now to a new year, we are entering into a new decade, which is a significant mile marker in every one of our lives. Many of us are thinking about who we are and what we are becoming, not just in terms of a year, but a decade. Who we're going to be at the end of this decade? Who we're going to be in 2029? These are really some, uh, this causes some of, you know, existential questions and that sort of thing. I know for Michelle and I, this is going to be a significant year of, a significant, sorry, decade of change. The first decade, uh, 2001, we met. 2004, we married. 2006, we begin to have kids. So that first uh, decade was really about meeting and starting a family. The next decade, the tens or whatever, was just really raising small children. And now we're entering in. We are now in the decade where all of my kids are going to become adults. And I need to be sure of who I am in Jesus Christ more than ever in a time where it's really going to be tested. Because who I am today is not going to be who I am in 2029, the things that I've identified with now are not going to be the things I'm going to be able to identify with in 2029. And and I'm sure that no matter where you are, what season of life you find yourself in, this is going to be a decade of change for you as well. What you are, what you're like, where you are, maybe even who you're with, what you're doing for a living, that all may be very different at the end of this decade. And, And this is why it is so vital that you grasp your unchanging identity. 
the, the, the truest thing about you that will not change, the truest thing about you that will not ebb and flow with different seasons and circumstances, the, that truest unchanging identity that is offered to us through Jesus Christ. Now, it may seem odd to you that we are beginning uh, to ponder this question of who am I by looking at a series of letters written to ancient churches. But it's important for us to realize that generally speaking, who we are is very much wrapped up in the people group that we're a part of. In fact, try explaining to me who you are without referencing anyone else. It's nearly impossible. Sooner than later, you're going to explain why I'm so-and-so's son or so-and-so's daughter, I'm so-and-so's friend or so-and-so's spouse, or I work with these people, or I like this music. It's all going to involve other people. And so who we are as who we are in Jesus Christ is wrapped up in who we are as the church. We are defined by this relationship. There is no me without us. And so because of this, I can't fully grasp my personal identity without first grasping our corporate identity. And, and neither can you. And so we're beginning this, this year-long journey of, of looking at identity by looking first at the seven letters written uh, to the churches, the seven letters of Jesus found in Revelation, Jesus' love letters to his church. Now, this letter that we're looking at today begins a basic pattern that we're going to see all throughout the rest of the letters. It helps me to sort of structure my sermon, helps us to remember and to see where we are in each letter. So this letter and the letters to come follow the same basic sort of framework. It begins first with a reminder of who Jesus is points back to something we find in chapter 1, some reference to his character and identity. Then secondly, we get an encouragement about what is going well in the church, something God sees and identifies and wants to encourage the church. And then third, we see a warning uh, about what has gone wrong in the church. And then ultimately, Jesus ends each and every church with a promise, a promise of what is to come through those who believe and trust in Jesus. Reminder, encouragement, warning, promise. So let's begin, first and foremost, with the reminder found in verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now remember, what are the lampstands? The seven churches. The one who holds the stars in his hands, and walks among the golden lampstands. Now, this letter to Ephesus is the first of the seven letters, and it's believed uh, to be the first for a couple different reasons. One is its proximity to Patmos. It was, uh, geographically speaking, if you were to leave Patmos and go inland, it would be the first city that you would reach. But there's another reason that Ephesus is the first letter, and it's based on the prominence of this city. Ephesus was a very significant city in the first century. The city was a major political, religious, and commercial hub in this portion of the world. First, it was the seat of power. When a proconsul would be assigned to this province, they would symbolically enter in through Ephesus as a show that this is a, a place of prominence. It was a significant place of worship. It had the temple dedicated to Artemis, which just happened to be one of the seven wonders of the world. No big deal, right? Where do you live? Well, I live where one of the seven wonders of the world is. Okay. And then third, it was a trading center. Most of the commerce that would happen 
I'll, I'll reverse it for you guys. Most of the commerce that would happen from the west meeting the east would collide right here at the port of Ephesus. The, the exchange from the west to the east, that export, import, export, came right through the port that was in Ephesus. And so wherever you turned, there were these reminders of greatness in these ornate temples dedicated to the gods and these beautiful gardens dedicated to the gods and Roman structures with these, these large, strong, firm columns and amphitheaters and commercial buildings and businesses and harbors and boats and all these reminders of greatness in their city. And then smack dab in the city of Ephesus is the church dogging it out. Enduring hardship, struggling to make progress. Um, by all earthly standards, they lacked importance. They were not the biggest group. They were not the most influential group in the city. They were very much a small fish in a big pond. In fact, Acts 19 records that when the church gathered in its early years, that it gathered in a place called the Hall of Tyrannus. And um, this was a place that they could afford. This is a place that they rented. And actually, the portion of time that they met was between 11 a.m. and 4 p.m., which in the non-air-conditioned world was not the time that you wanted to meet. And so this was a church that met in a rented space in like the least, uh, you know, like the, the time that you didn't want to meet uh, at the Hall of Tyrannus. And so in a city that would have become very disorienting by all these rival powers, political powers, religious powers, financial powers, Jesus reminds his church of one of the most encouraging words that we could ever hear. He says this, I hold the seven stars in my hand. I hold the seven stars in my hand. Essentially what Jesus is saying is this, Rome may boast, Artemis, Diana may boast, commerce may boast, but at the end of the day, I am the sovereign one that holds it all together. At the end of the day, I'm the one out here holding the stars in my hands. Not only do I hold it all together, but I'm holding you. In fact, many commentators agree that this, this reference to the stars in his hand aren't just stars in general, but they're, they're the, the identity of each individual church. It's, it's the personality of the church in the palms of their gracious Redeemer. And so what Jesus is saying is you are in good hands. You are in faithful hands. You are in powerful hands. And, and here's the takeaway for us. And it's this, that you are not defined by the buildings that you occupy, but by the hands that hold you. What Jesus is saying is you may not meet in one of the seven wonders of the world, but you are one of the seven stars in my hand. And you, you have something that they don't have. You have me, which means that you have true life, you have true freedom, you have true abundance, you have true paradise, true paradise. So he gives them this reminder. Secondly, he gives them the encouragement. Look with me in verses two through three. I, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. And found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. And you have not grown weary. I know. 
See, when Jesus speaks to the church and he says, I know, what Jesus is saying is, I see. I see you. We say it differently. I see you. I see you. You're out there. My eyes are on you. Now, I'm reminded of a scene from the movie Avatar, which seems to have gotten a little resurgence with, the, uh, uh, with Disney Plus and all that sort of thing. But um, Natiri and Jake, they're holding each other, and they're embracing in this very like dire moment. And in her native tongue, they, they say this phrase, and the phrase is, I see you. I see you. And it doesn't just mean like, my eyes see you right now. The phrase means, I acknowledge you. I acknowledge your personhood. I am, I, am, I am with you, and I acknowledge that you matter to me. I see the value in you. I see the value in your soul. And so think about the significance of Jesus saying this. I, I know, and I see you. See, we talk an awful lot about us seeing Jesus, and not nearly enough about Jesus seeing us. But here's the true miracle. That Jesus' eyes are upon us. The essence of faith is not that we see Jesus. The essence of faith is trusting that he sees us. That he acknowledges us. In fact, listen to the words of the Apostle Paul writing to the Galatians church. He says, but now since you, have, uh, since now you know God, or rather have become known by God. Now that you know God, wait, 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 even better. Now that God knows you. Now that God sees you. See, that's good news because while our vision of Jesus is constantly getting blurry, can I get an amen? His vision of us never blurs. I have to imagine that many of us are in that season right now where we're scratching our head and, and we're talking about vision, we're talking about revelation of Jesus, and you're saying to yourself, if I could be completely honest, I do not see Jesus in my life. I don't see the evidences of him in my life. I'm, I'm struggling to experience his nearness. I'm, I'm struggling to see the evidences of his grace in my life. That's okay. That's not the end of the world. Because at the end of the day, Jesus sees you. At the end of the day, Jesus acknowledges you. At the end of the day, Jesus knows you. I know you. I see you. This is also good news because we are all very desperate for validation. I see this in my own life, and I see this in many of your lives, some more than others. Just kidding. Um, but can we be honest? We're all very desperate for validation, aren't we? We're all deep down desperate for someone to look at our lives and in such a very simple yet profound way say you matter. Your life, what you do, the struggle that you're involved in, your efforts, your wins, your fails, all of it, you matter. And here's the thing, this is not a bad thing. That deep, desperate need for validation is not bad. It's good. It's how we are wired. It's how we are designed. It only goes bad when we begin to look to people to give us the validation that only Jesus can give to us. And think about how we are selling ourselves short when we look to the eyes of others, when in reality what matters most is that the eyes of Jesus are upon us. I won't be desperate for your validation when I have the validation of the sovereign one who holds the universe together. I don't need your eyes on me when the eyes of Jesus are upon me. Listen to Jesus' words here. 
I know and I see. I see your work. I see your toil. I see your hardship. I see your endurance. I see your faithfulness. Everything that you are fearful that is going to be overlooked, th- those, those days where you, you go home and you realize, like, I don't think I made any difference and I don't think anyone cares, and even if I disappeared, I don't think anyone would notice. Everything that is overlooked, Jesus is saying, is not missed on me. You are not forgotten. It matters. You matter. You matter as individuals. You matter as a church. Reality. We matter. We matter. A few weeks ago, I had lunch with a a local pastor that I trust and and really admire. And I was kind of recapping our year, and he told me something. He said, young man, that's when I know something good's coming. Young man, listen. He said, you've been so busy thinking about where you should be and what you are not and what should have been and what went wrong. He said, you just need to give yourself some space and time to celebrate what went well. You just need to like just Take a moment and say, this happened, and it was good. This is what Jesus is doing. This is just a moment to acknowledge the good that's occurring in the church. And we need that. We live in such a freaking critical world. Sorry. We live in such a critical world (laughs) that perhaps this is the only place where we can hear a word of encouragement. So the church should be marked by that encouragement, just taking a moment just to say, you know what, that went well, praise be to God. Let's keep that up. Let's keep doing that. And so uh, what we want to do is we want to give you opportunity to come hear what God has done in 2019. So mark your calendars two weeks from today, following the service, uh, January 26th. We're going to have a members meeting, and good news, this is the last members meeting you can attend and not be a member before we uh, roll out our formal membership. So everyone's invited, and we're gonna just spend the time reflecting on what God's done in our midst, okay? But just a, a sneak peek, 2019 was a year of transformation. God transformed lives. People came to faith. People got baptized. New leaders were raised up. We helped launch ministries. The poor were clothed. Uh, you as the church were more generous than you have ever been in our history. God has been good in our midst. Amen? But, and you knew it was coming because I I gave you the outline already. Let's look third at the warning. The warning. Now, there's something I haven't mentioned about Ephesus yet, and it was that Ephesus was a theological powerhouse. It was a theological hub. For starters, it was planted by none other than St. Paul. And then he stayed there for two years. That is like special treatment. Some places you'd stay for a matter of weeks and then have to move on. Paul's like, I'm gonna... The apostle Paul says, I'm going to plant this church, I'm going to stay two years. No big deal. Uh, in addition, Priscilla and Aquila ministered uh, in Ephesus. This was like the first century gospel power team, power couple, Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, additionally, Timothy, the young leader that, uh, I don't know, received two New Testament epistles in his name, 
Uh, he ministered there. John, the author of Revelation, was an elder in Ephesus, uh, arguably the most dense Rich theological epistle in the New Testament is the epistle to the uh, Ephesians. And then to add to it, church history tells us that Mary, the mother of Jesus, no big deal, was taken here in her final years. So think about this. For goodness sake, if there was any church that should have been deeply in love with God and so passionate about sharing the love of Jesus Christ and spreading it to others, it would have been this church. If there was any church in the entire world that was set up to succeed, it was Ephesus. It was this church. And yet listen to this heartbreaking statement from Jesus. But have this against you. You've abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and, and do the works you did at first. If not, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, just a, just a brief explanation. This Nicolaitans was a, a cult group. We're going to talk about them in just a few weeks. But let's focus on this, this warning here. What Jesus is essentially saying is somewhere along the line, your, your, your hearts stopped loving the me that remained at the heart of your theology. They were so in love with sound doctrine that they abandoned their first love. The, the God whom all of this doctrine points to. As I've heard it explained before, it was like going to a restaurant and studying the, the, the menu for so long that you forget that you were there to eat. They knew the menu, but they had never tasted and seen that the Lord is good. A warning that we must heed from this is that a church can be passionate about truth while they're absolutely cold toward the one true God. And in our fight for truth, we can actually lose track of the ultimate truth, that God is love. And God calls us into his love. Listen to how the Apostle Paul would explain the importance of love, and specifically the importance of love connected with our theology. The famous 1 Corinthians 13 passage. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. In other words, I am one of the instruments at that pagan festival. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, I give all my money away. And I give my life to be burned, my body to be burned, but I have not love. I gain nothing. If I'm killing it in my Christianity and I have not love, it is nothing. In no uncertain terms here, it is null and void. And so as a result of this lack of love, the result was that they became known for what they were against rather than what they were for. See, it's one thing to love God and love people so passionately that you love the things that come against him and his people. That's what hate is. Hate is an expression of love. I love this so much that I hate the thing that imposes upon it. <laughs> and Jesus even hates. He's like, I hate him too, trust me. 
I don't think he hates the person, but he hates the principles that they represent. Anyways, Jesus hates because he loves. It's not wrong to hate as long as we're hating the right things out of an expression of the right kind of love. I probably just opened up a can of worms that I don't have time to explain. But anyways, love is important. And <laughs> thank you. It's another thing to be known simply by that hate. In fact, if I'm reading this right, they were becoming now defined by that hate. And their need to be right had slowly but surely become their God. And that lovelessness began to consume them. Something remarkable about the statements of Jesus here is that it parallels something that was occurring in Ephesus at this time of the first century and actually for years before that and after. And the issue was occurring in the port of Ephesus. Remember, this, this major port city. And the issue was that the port was continually filling with this silt at the bed of the harbor. And they were constantly having to dredge the bottom and pull up all the muck. Year after year, they had to pull up this muck. They were trying to invent new technology. New emperors would come in and say, I've, new, I've got new technology. I've had all these people thinking about how we're going to save this port over and over again, over and over again. And, and Sooner than later, they realized, all right, this thing is just too far gone, and we're going to just move the port a few miles over. If you look at an aerial view of Ephesus today, where this port was, where the city is, is just in dry land. It's inland because they moved the port. And so in prophetic nature, Jesus is essentially saying the very same thing to the church. You are guardians of doctrine who neglected to guard your own hearts. You were so busy scooping up the muck in people's theology that you neglected all the muck that was beginning to settle in your own hearts. You were so concerned about being right over here that you neglected me. And so overcome the, the silt of lovelessness, that, that silt of, of bitterness, that silt of having to be right began to fill them. And Jesus is very clear, if you do not return to your first love, I'm going to remove your lampstand. What he's essentially saying is, I, I, I'll shut this thing down. There's a certain point where a church can become more harmful than it is good. And here's the scary thing. They can be the church that has the clearest, most robust doctrine statements and theology around. And Jesus says, this is an affront to me, and I'm about to shut it down. Now remember, what we have to remember is that this is not a breakup letter. This is a love letter. And this is a warning from the one who loves the church and died for her. Like, if there's anything, if there's anyone that's invested in this thing, it's Jesus. And so Jesus is not saying your time is up. What Jesus is essentially saying is that there's still time. There's still grace. There's still hope. Here's the beautiful thing about hearing the word of God. If you're hearing the word of God, there's still hope for you. If he's speaking, there's still hope. If he's confronting, there's still hope. There's a story about the apostle John, our author here, and it's recorded by a church historian named Eusebius. And the story goes that John was returning from exile, from Patmos, to the, to the various cities where there were churches. And 
he came to Ephesus, this sort of place that was near and dear to him. And there in Ephesus was a young man that he had a, a distinct heart for. But knowing that John had to move on to the different churches, he tasked one of the leaders there. He said, watch over this, this young man. Make sure he gets discipled. And so as John left, this leader cared for him. He, he raised him up in the Lord. He discipled him. He baptized him. But what ended up happening is that this, this young man fell in with the wrong crowd and, and partying turned to robbery and robbery turned into him essentially leading a, a, a band of thieves. And even during this time, it's recorded as he was knee deep in uh, robbery and, and, and armed robbery and hurting people and all these sort of things, the, the conviction of the Lord continued to beat against his heart. But not knowing what to do with that deep conviction, he sort of overreacted and just went headlong into this, this lifestyle. And so John eventually comes back to the city of Ephesus, and he asks the church leader, he says, where's the young man? And this leader begins to cry. And he says, he's dead. He's dead to God. For he turned wicked and is now a robber, and now instead of the church, he haunts the mountain with a band of thieves like himself. He's dead. Just forget him. He's gone. But John was not convinced that it was too late. And being about 70s, probably late 70s, early 80s at this point, he called for a horse and he took to the hill. And when he approached this band of robbers, robbers the story goes that the young man saw John from afar and overcome with shame, he turned around and he started just booking it, just running, running away from him. And quote, John forgets his age and pursues him with all of his might. And he yells to me, he says, why, my son, do you flee from me, your own father, unarmed age? Look at me. My son, fear not, and I love these words, you have still hope of life. I'll give an account to Christ for you. If need be, I will willingly endure your death as the Lord suffered death for us. For you I will give my life. Stand, believe, Christ has sent me. The story goes that the man stopped in his tracks, turned around, threw down his weapons, and he began to weep. And he repented and he returned. And, and the story highlights Jesus' appeal to the church here. I have to imagine that this John on horseback is remembering these words from Jesus. And knowing it is never too late. And what Jesus is saying is you've abandoned your first love. i got to be honest with you, but I've not abandoned you. And so he tells them what he desires of them and he desires for their lives. The first thing he says to do is he, he says, remember. I need you to remember. Remember from where you have fallen. There are often moments in our lives where we need this mental and emotional exercise of reminding ourselves of who we are and whose we are. Jesus is saying, hey, just do me a favor. Just remember us. Just, just take a moment to remember where we were. Like a spouse who is struggling to love the other may need to, to do something to remember. Maybe looking back through wedding photos, maybe watching the video of their ceremony, maybe going into that old shoebox and finding those, those love letters from the very beginning. 
This is what Jesus is doing. He's, he's saying, go back in your mind. Go back in your hearts. Remember. Remember us. The second thing he says to do is, is repent. This is a scary word, but what repent really means is to do just simply an about face. God says, Jesus says, turn around. And I love the simplicity of this. When you're moving in the wrong direction, God simply calls us to turn around. You don't have to beat yourself up. You don't have to pay some sort of penance. The penalty for our sin has been paid already once and for all at the cross so that all that you need to do is turn around and receive the one that's pursuing you. Just turn around. Then thirdly, he says, return. Do the works that you did at first. Come back to your first love. Friend, are you lost? Are you feeling weary and anxious and aimless in your faith? Where, where am I? How did I get here? Where am I going? What is this all about? I love these words for Jesus, from Jesus. Just go back to the beginning. Here's the, here's the secret of the kingdom. The progress in the kingdom is actually going back to the beginning. We want to move forward, and Jesus is saying, if you want to move forward, then come back. Come back to the beginning. If we could be honest, man, we, we complicate this thing all the time. We're connecting dots that aren't even there. We're making a simple gospel so complex, and Jesus is like, just come back to the beginning. Come back to that most basic message that God loves me, that Christ died for me, that it's all going to be okay. Return. Do the works that you did at first. What Jesus is saying here is I want to be on your mind. I want to be your priority. I want to be your, your, your one and only. I want to be first in your life. And ultimately, I want to be your love. I want to be your love. And what we see from this letter is it's not enough to give Jesus our, our, our minds. It's not just enough to give him our our intellectual assent, our, our belief. He's calling for our hearts. Because who you are and what you're becoming has everything to do with the direction of your love. It was St. Augustine who said, you are what you love. You're, you're moving in the direction of what you love most. And when Jesus has our love, he has our everything. So Jesus reminds them. He encourages them. He warns them. And then finally, he gives them a promise. Look at me in verse 7, and I'll, I'll, I'll be brief. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. To the one who conquers. Now, I, I love the redefining of the word conquering here, because when I say the word, and I think the word conquering, I think of a lot of things. I think of swords, I think of blood, I think of victory. But what is conquering in the kingdom of God? Conquering is not winning theological battles, clearly. And conquering is not being the greatest in town. Then what is it? Conquering is prevailing in love. It's living into the love that's been extended to us in Jesus Christ. And this is how we endure. This is how we persevere when it doesn't feel like we're conquering. We're called into the victorious life of Jesus Christ, 
but I meet very few people that are like, man, I am standing in the victory today. I am more than a conqueror. So this is how we endure when we don't feel like we're conquering. We set our minds and we set our hearts on the promise of paradise. Jesus leaves them with a promise in order to empower them to persevere. We all know the story in the book of Genesis when Adam and Eve were tempted by the idea that they could know like God knows. When they could have knowledge like God has without that whole obedience thing and without, without that whole communion with God thing, they chose the fruit of the tree over the love of the Father. Through eating of the tree of, of knowledge of good and evil, they were cut off from the tree of life. And yet that paradise, that eternal life with God is now being offered to us once again. What was cut off in Genesis is being reintroduced, is being returned to us in Revelation so that the life and the joy and the freedom and the abundance that we all long for can be ours. The, the door that was once guarded by cherubim with, with flaming swords is now found, that same door is now found in the embracing arms of Jesus. A welcome home, a welcome back to paradise. And so as the church in Ephesus would walk the streets and see all the signs of greatness, seven, one of the seven wonders of the world, and columns and amphitheaters and success, beautiful gardens, all of these things, and then they would look at their own lives and their own struggle and their own hardships, and they would be confused by all of it. What is going on? Did I choose the right team? What have I done with my life? Where have I entrusted my trust here? Jesus says, hang on to this promise. The best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. Reality, who, who are we? We are those who are in good hands. Reality, who are we? We are those who are defined by the one who sees us and says our lives matter. Reality, who, who are we? We are the ones who are deeply loved by God. Reality, who are we? We are heirs of paradise. Heirs of paradise for the one that conquers through faith. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. God, we thank you for this.